0: The book of Revelation chapter 1, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, as we continue our sermon series in this great book, take out the Bible, open up to the last book, Revelation chapter 1, this morning we're looking at verses 9 through 20. And let me just read the passage, Revelation 1, 9 to 20, then we'll dig into it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the sufferings and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's Day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and His voice like the sound of rushing waters. In His right hand He held seven stars, and out of His mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. And then He placed His right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living One. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Well, this is our third Sunday uh, into a new sermon series on the book of Revelation. And just a question for personal reflection. What, what have you gotten out of the book so far? What, what is it that you've been taking from it? I'll tell you what it is for me. Um, it kind of surprised me, but I think what the most powerful thing that's hit me is that I've been struck with the thought again, that the risen Jesus is speaking to us through this book. And it's kind of funny because, of course, I've believed that before I read the book of Revelation. I mean, this is the Word of God. This is God's Word. The words in this book are God's words in a way that is unique and unlike any other book. If you want to hear God speaking today, if you want to hear the voice of God, read this book. And so I've I believed that and I've preached that. You know that. But sometimes you can know something and you believe something, and then there are times when truths hit you in a fresh way. Things that you've always known, but they impact you more deeply. And I think that's what's happened, at least for me anyway, with Revelation. It's just kind of a sobering, humbling awareness that this is Jesus and this prophecy, and He's speaking to us. And I've just found that humbling and quieting rather than being kind of charged up like, oh, cool, we're studying Revelation. Isn't that an exciting, interesting book? Won't this be fun and different? For me, it's been more quieting and humbling to think the risen Christ is addressing us. Are we listening? And that sense is only amplified and strengthened by the passage we're studying today here in verses 9 to 10. Revelation 1, 9 to 10 is the commissioning of John to write down the words of this prophecy. Uh, In in that sense, John is very much like many of the Old Testament prophets. If you go back to the uh, prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Samuel, they'll often include a narrative of how they got to the place of becoming a prophet, how God originally appeared to them and spoke to them. And that's what we have here. So, So we have... John standing sort of in the tradition, the the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. And he too is going to give his call narrative of how God originally called him to be a prophet. So let's look into that story and we're going to see that the risen Jesus is speaking. So verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus so here's John. He's like, I was on this island on Patmos. Now, uh, if you've never been to Patmos, there's probably a reason because it's not really a good place to go. Uh, Patmos is not... Don't think of your typical kind of picturesque Greek island where you go for a vacation. Patmos is pretty much a big volcanic rock sticking up out of the water. It's a really dead, hard, harsh place. It's, a, it's an island about 10 miles long and at its widest place in the north, about 6 miles wide. And we know from history that it was one of the islands where the Romans sent political prisoners that they wanted to exile. So uh, so this was a place where exiles were sent, which fits with what John says here. He says, I was on the island of Patmos. you see why? Not because of vacation. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here you have John writing most likely in 95 A.D., a time when the emperor of Rome was a guy named Domitian, and Domitian was kind of losing it. It seemed that the Roman emperors lost it a lot. (laughs) He was losing it, and he was losing control of his empire, and so like a good tyrant, the way he dealt with it was by increasing control over his empire, and he started telling people they needed to worship him as emperor. He took the imperial cult, and he sort of cranked it up. So you can imagine someone like John, who would not worship any emperor as God who would not burn incense and say Caesar is Lord because he believed that Jesus was Lord. And so John finds himself exiled on this island. He's on this rock, this hunk of volcanic stone sticking up out of the ocean. And it's there that that he's suffering in an exile. But it's not just John who's suffering. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion." In the sufferings, and kingdom, and patient endurance. So John's like, hey, look, you and I are together in suffering to these churches he's writing. So the churches were in suffering too. And we're going to see that in the next couple Sundays as we get to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. We're going to see these churches on the mainland were really struggling. If you look in your uh, sermon notes, look in your bulletins, you'll find this little piece of paper. I put a little map there of these churches. So here's the eastern Mediterranean region. And you can see on Turk, what would be Turkey today, Asia Minor, there's the seven churches. You see them there? Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And you see the little, the little dot there? That's the island of Patmos. So there's the dot where, the island where John was. So he's right into these churches. And these churches are suffering too. You know, we're going to see in some of these churches, they're in cities where people are literally being put in prison and losing their jobs because of their faith. In other cities, in these letters, the people are battling against false teaching in the church. In other cities, there's pressures to compromise with the world and to be like the world and to fit in and to get along and go along with everybody else. And so there's a tension. He says, so he says, you and I are companions in the suffering that is in Jesus. You just have to understand this, people. If we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ... Do you understand this? You are going at odds with the world. That if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're taking a path that is in is diametrically opposed to the world. I love what Pete D'Angelo said in his testimony. You know, you no know one can serve two masters, and following Christ is is an either-or kind of choice. And when we get serious about following Christ, the world is going to resist us. You know, I hope I hope Will knew what he was getting into when he got baptized. <laughs> It's resistance from the world, huh, brother? We've got to fight. You know, when we become Christians and we get baptized and we take that step, there's no turning back. Because now we are adopting a belief system and a value system and a hope that is totally different from this world. And so there's going to be resistance. Don't be surprised. If you don't fit in with everyone on the field hockey team, don't be surprised if people harass you around the water cooler. Don't be surprised if people look at you funny when you mention the name of Jesus. It goes with the territory of being a Christian because we're going the opposite direction from the world. And so if if you're in Jesus, there will be suffering, whether it's small acts of ostracism or whether like in some countries around the world, places like Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Iran where believers are imprisoned in China, they're killed at times for their faith. Today, it's happening today. Brothers and sisters today are paying a price for their faith. And so they're suffering in Christ. But there's also, look what he says in verse 9, brother and companion in the kingdom. So we are simultaneously suffering and members of the kingdom of God. So it's a funny thing. We're we're simultaneously defeated and triumphant. Just as Christ, when He was here on earth, was the King of kings, and yet He suffered ridicule and harassment and even the cross. So the way forward as Christians, as members of the kingdom of God, is the path of suffering and, for, and being willing to endure difficult things for Christ, which is why it says that we need patient endurance. We need patient endurance. If you're going to live the, Christ, the Christian life, you've got to be an overcomer. In fact, I would say that's perhaps the primary application of the book of Revelation. If I were to say what's the main thing we should all take away from Revelation as a personal application for our lives, it's this. We need to persevere and overcome in our faith against everything that is opposed against us in the world. At the end of every letter, as we're going to see, it says, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. So we're going to have to persevere as Christians. So this is, this is the context When Jesus is going to appear and speak to John, this is where he is. He's in exile, writing to harass Christians, writing to discourage Christians. And it's into this setting that Jesus speaks. Verse 10, on the Lord's Day, which is what day? A Sunday. It's the Lord's Day because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So on the Lord's Day, he says, I was in the Spirit, which probably means he was having some kind of visionary experience. He says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there's this voice saying, I want you to write down something for me. I have a message. Somebody is speaking. And so, you know, naturally, if you heard that behind you, you would turn around. And John turns around and that's when he gets blown away. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his waist. So he turns around, and there's this guy wearing priestly clothes with seven lampstands in front of him. And, you know, in the Old Testament, the priest would often so tend to the lamps. That was one of the jobs the priest had. They would go into the temple or the tabernacle and they would make sure the lamps were lit and they had enough oil and all that. So you have this kind of priestly figure. He's standing among the lampstands, tending them. But look, it's way more than a priest. It's way more than just some Old Testament priest. Because look at verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. So John turns around to see a gleaming, shining, blazing, godlike being that causes Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He sees this terrifying person standing before him. And who is it that's standing before John? Who is this being? Is this an alien? Is this an angel? What is this? Brothers and sisters, it is the risen Jesus Christ appearing before John. Because look at verse 17. This person speaks. He says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the risen Christ who was dead and who is alive forever and ever. Let's go back and look a little more closely at this picture. So let's go back to verses 12 and 15 and just take some time to linger over this vision of Christ. What is this strange vision of Christ? What's all this shining feet and shining face and burning eyes and white hair? You know, I thought Jesus had black hair. Isn't that how he looks in the movies? I mean, what, is he, did he age? You know, what's happening here? Um, well, this vision of Christ comes primarily out of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and chapter 10. So what happens is John draws upon the visions of Daniel and he uses them to describe christ that he's seeing here so i want you to do this we need to go back to daniel and get this it's pretty amazing put a bookmark here in revelation one because we're going to come back to it turn over to daniel chapter seven page 881 if you're using one of those pew bibles daniel chapter seven and and keep a finger in revelation one and daniel seven because we're going to go flip flop flip flop back and forth so we've got to track this vision So in Revelation 1, John sees someone like a son of man. Now that's an important line. That's a pointer right back to Daniel 7. Because Daniel, 600 years before John, had a vision of the son of man. Alright? And it's the same vision. If you look at verse, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Here's Daniel, another prophet. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one. Like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God, and He was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is Jesus. It's a vision of Christ coming to the father on the cloud receiving all authority in heaven and on earth so not only is jesus the priest walking among the lampstands he is also the king ruling over the nations all nations all people this is what jesus said when he rose from the dead he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so he has all authority christ reigns over all and notice this this is really interesting you have the Son of Man coming into the presence of God and the Son of Man is worshipped. Which is really odd because according to sort of strict Jewish monotheism, nobody is worshipped except God. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. It was wrong to worship any other God. But now the Son of Man who comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days is worshipped. Which, you know, what is going on here? And it's, it's one of those places where in the Old Testament we see the Trinity. We see God the Father and God the Son. God the Son coming into the presence of God the Father. And, and so here, even here we see that this triune God. One God, not three gods, one God, but in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Son is coming back into the presence of the Father. So as we look back then at Revelation 1, we see that not only is He the priest, He's also the King. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 14 of Revelation 1. His head and hair were white like wool as white as snow. What's that all about? Go back to Daniel 7. Before the vision of the son of man there's a vision of of God on his throne the ancient of days and there's this vision in verses 9 to 10 of God sitting in judgment before the nations God is going to judge the world so it's a picture of the judgment day it's a really terrifying picture verse 9 it says as i looked thrones were set in place and the ancient of days that is god took his seat on the judgment throne his clothing was white as snow the hair of his head was white like wool there it is his throne was flaming with fire its wheels were all ablaze a river of fire was coming out from before him thousands upon thousands attended him 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court was seated the books were opened judgment has come upon the nations and here's the ancient of days with his his white hair you, you know symbolizing his wisdom and his ancientness judging and now when you look back at revelation 1 there's Jesus with the same white hair taken out of daniel which tells us two things it tells us that not only is Jesus the priest and the king with all the authority he's also the judge the double edged sword comes out of his mouth the sword of judgment He's the judge. Tells us another thing though. Jesus is God. (laughs) And people say, well, where in the Bible does it say Jesus is God? Right here. He he takes on the appearance of the Ancient of Days in the Old Testament. He is God in human flesh. It's right there. What about the rest of it? What about his feet like glowing bronze glowing in a furnace? What about you know his face shining like the sun uh, well that those texts actually come from Daniel chapter ten. So just one more text. put your bookmark here in revelation. Turn over to daniel chapter ten now daniel Daniel had a lot of visions. Daniel saw a lot of weird stuff, and uh, one of the visions Daniel had was he he saw this guy. In the air over the river, and and he appeared to him. Um, It's not exactly clear whether what he saw was a great angelic messenger, or I think an argument could be made that what he saw was God the Son manifesting Himself. You know, sort of the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament, God the Son appearing. But either way, the point is it's some kind of angelic or heavenly messenger. So look at verse four of Daniel chapter 10. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold around his waist. So there's that part from Revelation. His body was like chrysolite. His face like lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. There's that part from Revelation. His arms and His legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. His voice like the sound of a multitude. Okay, so those are the other parts of Jesus' appearance in Revelation. So Jesus is the priest who walks among the lampstands. He's the king who rules over all the world. He is God Himself, the judge of the world. And He is the heavenly messenger who comes with divine authority to speak. And I love if you look at Daniel 10. Look how Daniel responds to this vision. What does he do? Verse verse 7, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. (laughs) I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. He just... Did a face plant. Out. Cold. K.O. By the presence of God. What an awesome picture. And isn't that what happened to John when I saw him back in Revelation 1.17? I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the risen Christ. The priest. The king. The divine judge. The heavenly messenger. Standing before us. Speaking to us. Can I ask you a question? Ask myself this question. Is this how we see Jesus? Is this how we think of Jesus? Is this our mental picture? When I say the word Jesus, what do you picture? Um, I think a lot of times, my guess is a lot of us probably picture Jesus the way we've seen him in the movie portrayals. You know, if you've seen him in the movies, you know, he's kind of the 70s hippie looking guy, right? He's got like the long hair and the beard, blue eyes, because you know Middle Eastern folks all have blue eyes, um, <laughs> and and he's got a robe, and he's got a sash, and he's maybe holding a lamb, or maybe he's he's got a little kid with his hand, and he's this kind of nice, sort of safe, friendly, crunchy kind of character um, th- that we see. And, you know, there's some elements of truth in that because during his 30 or so years on this earth between his birth and crucifixion, he was a humble carpenter. He was just a humble Jewish rabbi. But we forget that God the Son existed forever before he became Jesus. And after he was raised from the dead, he now lives forever and ever as the glorified Jesus. And we often just think of that one little window of his humiliation. But we forget that before God the Son became a human being named Jesus, he was God the Son. Do you remember when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer? This is at the Last Supper before the crucifixion. Jesus prayed in John 17, And now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. I mean, that's some kind of crazy prayer, you know. I want to have that glory again that I had with you before the world began. I mean, you don't pray that if you're just kind of a a regular good teacher like everyone. You need to ask people, who is Jesus? Well, He was a good man. You know, He was a good teacher. Like, what kind of good man prays that? It's not what a good man prays. That's what someone who's got problems prays. Or, if you're God, you can pray that. There's only two types of people who can pray that prayer. People who have some issues and people who are God. And Jesus says, I want that glory again that I had. He was God the Son. But then God the Son took on human flesh and He became a human named Jesus. He didn't get rid of His divinity. He didn't stop being God. But His divinity was in some way encapsulated within humanity so that His glory was hidden. That glory that He had, that brilliance and beauty, the, the shining forth of His holy and divine character was hidden as He became a human being. And He walked among us and people didn't know it was Him. Even when He did miracles, they still are like, really? He just looked like a regular Jewish guy. I mean, really? And some believed and some didn't. He was like uh, Henry VIII in Shakespeare's play on, on the night of the battle before the English fight the French. Henry VIII... Puts on the clothes of a commoner, and he walks among his troops, and they don't know it's him. Or it's like in Lord of the Rings with Gandalf, you know, if you know that story, Gandalf the wizard. He's just this kind of old wizard, right? And he looks like an old man. He's got his gray clothes on, his gray hat, and he's walking around with his staff. And you know, you wouldn't know that he was this great and powerful wizard. He's sort of hidden underneath it. Interestingly, in Lord of the Rings, um, what happens to Gandalf, right? He fights the demon. He dies. He comes back to life as a brilliant, white, glorified Gandalf the White. Interesting, huh? Uh, but I digress. Um, I could, yeah, Not here to preach Lord of the Rings. And so just like that, Christ's glory was hidden so that people couldn't see it. It did peak out once. Do you remember when? In the transfiguration. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, this John, and he went up on the mountain, and he went up on the mountain, and he started shining brightly like the sun, and Elijah and Moses were there, and and this cloud came down the mountain, and and what it was, was they had a a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. He he kind of let it, you know, he let it peek out a little bit, so that they saw who he was. And then it went away, and remember what Jesus said? He goes, don't tell anyone you saw this, till after I'm raised from the dead. After that, You could tell this story, write it down. But right now, this is, Mom's the Word. Because I don't want people to know who I am. They have to put their faith in me. I have to, I'm going to the cross. I'm coming as the suffering servant before being the glorified King. But then after he was crucified, buried, he was raised. He ascended to heaven and he received again the glory that was his. Now, in some sense, amplified because he had conquered death and he had done the work of the cross, and He had been faithful to the Father as the perfect, faithful High Priest. And now He is this Christ. If you were to see Jesus today, this is the Jesus that you would see. This glorying Christ. This is the Jesus who appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. That made Paul cower and hide and tremble and say, who are you, Lord? You know That's this Jesus. And here, Jesus appears to John And what does John do? He falls at his feet as though dead. Which I find really interesting because John, again, was one of the three who were in the inner circle with Jesus. Right? You'd think if John saw Jesus, he'd be like, Jesus! It's been so long! Knuckle me! I mean, no. He just falls at his feet as though dead. When he sees the divine glory of Jesus Not even peeking out like on the Mount of Transfiguration, but just rolling over Him like a wave. And He's he's overwhelmed with the glory of Christ. Is this how we see Jesus? If this vision of Jesus could be burned onto our hearts and our souls... So that when we left here today, we didn't instantly forget it, but we took it with us and we meditated upon it. If this picture of Christ were to linger in our minds and our hearts and affect us, I mean, what what would it do for us? How would it affect us? Let's just start real simple. Here we are, Lord's Day. We're gathered for worship. How would this understanding of Jesus affect the way we come into this space together? Hmm? How would it affect the way that we sing or, or pray or even just get ready for Sunday? You know, say so like, oh, the church, uh, yeah, got to get there. You know, I mean, it's just like we're coming together into the presence of Christ among His gathered people through His Holy Spirit. What would it do to our worship? What would this vision of Christ do to our lives when we go out of these doors for the rest of the week? You know, the rest of Sunday, Monday through Saturday. I I love Pete's testimony about how you you know he would party Saturday and then go to church Sunday. And maybe we don't party, but we do a lot of things during the week that are contrary to to our faith in Christ. There are a lot of temptations out there. We're tested. But if we have this vision of Christ as the divine judge with his burning eyes and the sword coming out of his mouth, how would that affect us when we were? not in church, but talking to our family or our spouse or our children? How would it affect the way I relate to people I meet or strangers? How would it affect the way I deal with my time and my money? What would it do to me in those private moments when there's no one around and no one knows what I'm thinking or saying or doing, but one does? God sees me with His burning eyes. How would it affect our Christian lives if we had this vision of Jesus? How would it affect our are talking to other people about Jesus. You know, I I really feel like I can relate to these seven churches living here in New England. It's tough being a Christian in New England. It is tough being a, a person who wants to be serious about following Jesus. You know to stand up and say to people, yeah, I'm you know, I'm I'm following Christ or or as a follower of Jesus, I think this that and the other thing because you just know there's this whole like people going, "Oh, oh, we got a live one here," you know. Whoa, this guy's taking this seriously. and You can just feel that, that weird social thing that happens when you start talking about Christ in a conversation with people. And so we're afraid of that. So we, we try to blend in, downplay it. We're embarrassed. You know, I, I know this is kind of weird, but I go to church kind of a thing. You know what's weird? You know what's bizarre? Do you know what's freakish and absurd? Do you know what's ridiculous and unspeakable? Do you know what's horrific and damnable? Is that this world does not worship this Savior. That's the weird thing. That we are not all gathering as a global community praising Christ. That's what's sick. And here's the thing. We will all have this vision someday. Do you understand that? We will all see this with our own eyes when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to have this vision from John. Are you ready to see Him? Are you ready to face Him? What does He have to do to get through to you? Are we ready? Because this is the Savior. And when John sees Him, he says, John, one of the three disciples who was closest to Jesus just falls at his feet as though dead and then i love this part in verse 17 then he placed his right hand on me and he said in four best words do not be afraid brothers and sisters there is only one thing in the universe you need to truly fear you need to fear god We're afraid of all this stuff. We're afraid of politics and economics and H1N1 and this and that. There's only one thing we need to fear. We need to fear God. We need to fear Christ. And the one whom we must fear has placed his nail-pierced hand upon us and said, do not fear. So what do we have to fear? If the great judge has come to die for my soul to save me and forgive me. Like these brothers were testifying up here. If Christ has forgiven me, if the only one I need to tremble before puts His hand upon me and says, I've died for you. I'm your Savior. Do not fear. I mean, what do we have to fear? And why shouldn't we fear? He says, because I am the first and the last, which is... Simply another way of saying, I am God. That's right out of Isaiah. Again, where does the Bible say Jesus is God? Well, Jesus said it right there. There it is in plain black and white English. I am the first and the last, Jesus says. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I I don't know I love that part. Not only is He uh, first and last, He's God, He was crucified. He's risen. He's living. But then I I love that part. He pulls out the key ring. And look what I got. Jingle, 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 jingle. (laughs) I've got the keys to death and Hades. So what are you afraid of? You know, John, what are you afraid of? You're sitting here on Patmos. Yeah, you're in exile. I mean, what's the worst thing they could do to you, John? Kill you? Guess what? I've got the keys. I I don't only conquer death. I own it. This is mine. I own death and Hades. It will do what I say. What an encouraging word to the Christians in these seven churches that we're going to study that were being beat down by their own communities that were facing temptation to have Jesus standing before them saying, I am the first and the last. I have the keys. What are you afraid of? Stop being cowards. Stop compromising. And let your light shine. And man, what an encouraging word to Christians in New England to stand firm for the gospel, to not be ashamed of our faith, to, to not be ashamed to say the name of Jesus, to not be ashamed to say what you did this weekend. <laughs> what did you do this weekend? Uh, past game. You know, like, well, before that, you know, well, I was somewhere with some other people. Uh, you know, like, no, I was worshiping Jesus this weekend. It was great. High point of my weekend. I heard some people give, get baptized. What? You know? What was that all about? You know, tell people about Christ. Why should we be afraid? He holds the keys of death. We should fear nothing. The worst thing the world can do to us is kill us. And Christ holds the keys of death and Hades. And it is this Christ who is speaking to us. It is this Christ who not only spoke to John, but spoke to those seven churches. And as we'll see through those seven churches, speaks to all Christians. At the end of every word of the church, it always says, Let he who has ears to hear hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to all of us. So Christ is speaking. And so He commissions them again, verse 19, Write therefore what you have seen, now that He's calmed them down. Write what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. Write down this vision, everything you're going to see in it. And then I love verse 20. Verse 20 is awesome. Because in verse 20, Jesus actually explains two of the symbols. I wish there were more verses in Revelation where someone explained the symbols. The <laughs> verse 20 is great. We actually get two of the symbols you don't have to guess. There's at least two things in Revelation I can say I know what they mean because Jesus tells us what they mean. And it's the stars and the lampstands. Jesus says, "The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this: The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches." We'll talk more about that next week, but I take that just to mean they're angels representing us before God. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's Jesus, He's walking among the lampstands. Those lampstands represent those seven churches. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am among you, I see you, I know you, I am aware, I am in your midst. And if we could see Christ in heaven right now on His throne, we would see lampstands. And we could find one lampstand, a gold one standing there, and inscribed on that lampstand, it would say, South Shore Baptist Church. Christ is among us. He sees us. I find that simultaneously very encouraging and a little bit scary to know that he sees us. And these letters, we'll see, are simultaneously encouraging and challenging. And through this book, Christ speaks to his churches right now, in real time, in the 21st century even, he's speaking. So I have a homework assignment for you. This is your homework for next Sunday. I would like you this week to...